Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Good morning. Glad y'all are out today with us. We have a... Uh, some visitors here, which is uh, great. We have a, a lot of our own uh, regular members uh, traveling today. So it's, uh, it's always good to have visitors, especially good to have you when some of our, our regulars here are away. Um, <clears throat> at this church in 2019, we've been focusing on uh, 1 John 4:19, which is on the banners around the building. We love because he first loved us. And that's a good passage to have as your sort of daily uh, mantra. It's a good mission statement for a church. Uh, it, it, really, the whole Bible in many ways can be uh, encapsulated in those words. We love because God first loved us. So our love is, is um, patterned after God's. It's motivated by God's love for us. Uh, it was initiated by God's love. It all begins with the action of God. He initiates in grace, but he expects us to respond in kind. We love others in our families in our church family, in the larger community, even the non-Christian community. We love because God first loved us. And um, I want to talk about um, an aspect of that this morning. If, if we're, we're going to sort of you know, list some things that would show love to other people, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find something which would show love in a more powerful way uh, for another person, especially somebody outside of Christ, than uh, showing them that love by, by leading them to Jesus Christ. Talking to them about the gospel. Showing them Jesus. Preparing them for eternity. There are a lot of ways we can love people um, that have uh, you know, benefits for the rest of their life on earth, but only certain kinds of love can take people uh, beyond that into eternity in terms of the benefits that we confer upon them. I mean, think about raising kids. Some of us have raised kids. Some of us are in the process of raising kids. Some of you will one day be rearing kids. Some of you are just going to watch people rear kids. Uh, you're doing that right now in this building. Um, uh, kind of whether you, you're enjoying it right now or not. Uh, don't look too closely in our, our direction sometimes. But anyway, um, when you're rearing kids... I've heard it said before that we need to think of it as parents as we're not really rearing kids. What we're doing is we're rearing, young, we're rearing men and women. If you think of it too much about the moment, then, then thinking about it in terms of like where the kid is going to be once they are mature, if you're thinking about it that way, things begin to change. I mean, what shows a child greater love? Uh, making him happy or making her happy in the moment? 
or fitting them, outfitting them, wiring them, training them for their maturation. The balance of their years on earth typically are going to be in the maturity, you know, from 20 on, not from uh, 0 to 20. So uh, you do more for your kids if you're preparing them for the long run than for just the moment. And I realize the temptation, it's easier sometimes to just placate somebody and make them happy in the moment. And I want to analogize that with our relationship with the non-Christian community. What kinds of engagement, what kinds of things do we talk about? How do we regard, how do we think about our love for others? Is it in terms of just what happens on this earth, their lifetime here and in the here and now, or is it for uh, the eternity that every human being will uh, be a part of somewhere, some, uh, somehow? So love means helping people eternally, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. That's exactly what this early Christian, this first century Christian named Philip, did. He, we read in Acts chapter 8 this episode where Philip goes up to the chariot of an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, somebody from the royal court of Ethiopia. He's been in Jerusalem, probably a Jewish proselyte. Otherwise, why would he go to Jerusalem to, to worship? But when he's riding back to Ethiopia... Philip gets this instruction from the Lord to go meet with him down in a desert area called Gaza. And he does have this conversation with him that was just read, that Bob just read to us from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And what, what the Lord says to, uh, to Philip is, rise and go. Go talk to this person about Jesus. Go communicate the good news, the gospel to Jesus. Rise and go. Go share the message of Jesus with another person. And that's exactly what Philip did. And the result is that uh, this Ethiopian is converted to Jesus Christ. His sins are forgiven. And he ends up back in Ethiopia. We don't know the rest of the story. But um, you can imagine other people that he might have talked to. He's excited, we're told in the text. So who knows how many people that he paid this blessing of salvation forward to in subsequent years. A seed was planted. We have no idea how far that went. There could be Christians today who learned Christ through a parent, who learned it from a parent, who learned it from a parent, all the way back to somebody who was taught by this Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know. So you never know how far it will go. But the point is, Philip rise and went to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to share the gospel with uh, somebody who needed to hear it. So that's our topic this morning, outreach. We're talking about communicating the good news of Jesus to those around us. We need to be people like Philip who rise and go when the opportunity presents itself. We need a missional heart, a heart that is thinking, that is convicted, that is um, Imagining ways, better ways to share the gospel, to do evangelism, to, to uh, uh, apprise people around us of, of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus. Now at bottom, evangelism involves communication, right? It is the process of sharing the good news, of teaching or preaching the good news. And so it, it, it largely is about, I'm not saying it's only about communication. It involves our lives and, and helping people and connecting with people. But at some point, it's really not evangelism. It's not the gospel that's being transmitted and received if we're not going to be thinking about communication. That has to happen. I mean, Philip had to engage with the eunuch. He had to rise and go. God didn't just beam the message of the gospel into the eunuch's brain. God could do that. He's God. He could, we, there could be no human intermediary or mediation necessary, but that's not the way it happens. That's not the way God designed it. Philip had to communicate with this eunuch. And so the whole episode in Acts 8 is a long conversation. It's a long scripture reading. And it's a big conversation that we have recorded for us there in Acts 8. It's about somebody talking or communicating with another person about Jesus. So let's talk this morning about evangelism as communication. And I want to suggest four things this morning from this text that we've got to appreciate about evangelism as communication if we're going to be people who, as it were, rise and go when the opportunity presents itself. So, evangelism is a kind of communication which is, first of all, I think this is the most fundamental thing we have to remember, it's mandated by God. 
Like this is a divine directive. It's not really presented in the scriptures as something that is peripheral to regular Christianity. You know, the normal Christian doesn't have to do this, but there are missionaries who do it. No, in the Bible, every Christian, every disciple is supposed to be presenting the gospel to other people in some form or fashion. There are a lot of ways to do that. I'm not, and we'll talk about that maybe at the end of the lesson. Um, it's not some, some you know, one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter operation. But we are uh, given this mandate from God to share our faith. Christianity was never supposed to be a light underneath a basket, right? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to let our light shine, just like we sung a minute ago. And so that means getting the word out, sharing this wonderful thing. And you can see the directives from God right here in Acts chapter 8. Now an angel from the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. So it begins with a divine directive to which Philip responds positively. God sends his angel communicates this message. Here's a place you need to go. It takes a little bit of faith because it says it's a desert place. You know, Luke just throws that in here. But he trusts. He rises up. I don't know what he was doing, but he leaves that and he goes because this is important and it's the Lord saying he needs to uh, preach the gospel, uh, to, uh, have this conversation with this man that he's never met before. In verses 29 and 30, further, the Spirit of God says to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. And so Philip ran to him. Again, a divine directive to do outreach, to communicate the gospel. And Philip responds. He goes, in fact, he runs to him. And then a little bit later in the narrative, uh, the eunuch actually invites Philip up uh, to sit with him in the chariot. And we won't read the rest of it right now, but he does that. And so there are these uh, directives that, that God issues, and then the eunuch itself, himself issues, and, 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 they, and Philip responds positively. And to me, this is just an outgrowth of, of some of the most basic Christianity 101 stuff. I mean, at the tail end of Luke's, uh, Matthew's gospel, and in a parallel over in Mark's gospel, in Mark 16, we have uh, accounts of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, if I had the earlier verses here, you would see Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So disciples, by definition, make disciples. It is a replicating kind of thing. By definition, it's not for super disciples or disciples you know, prime or disciples who are, want to go for the special honor badge or something like that. Well, everybody else just sort of sits around. Disciples, disciple. I mean, this is the, the commission, some of his last words on earth. You disciples go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So presumably, that would include these words. That's some of what Jesus said to them, right? And so disciples are telling other disciples how to follow Jesus, how to be baptized into Christ, and, and how to make more disciples and, and, and live, learn the life of, of, of the consecrated life of, of following uh, Jesus and living as Jesus would live. And then Jesus assures them, I'm with you in this all the way to the end of the age. All right, so this is part of what God would have us do. And I'm not suggesting he's going to do it in the same way, necessarily, that, that uh, Philip is, is you know, directed in Acts 8. You don't have to have an angel of the Lord come to you to begin to think more about ways you can share the gospel with other people. Um, God still provides opportunities. He can do it any way He wants. In His providential dealings with us and, and our relationships with other people, God could be providing opportunities right now, but we haven't eyes to see them. I'm reminded of Colossians 4, where Paul asked the Colossian church to pray for us, he says. Paul says, pray for me and my, my company that are out you know, teaching the gospel, that God may open to us a door for the Word. And that's what I'm talking about today. How many doors for the Word is God already opening in our lives? At work, at school, in our neighborhood, online, in person, at the supermarket, at the barber, you know, wherever. But we're not seeing those, perhaps. He says, pray for us that God will open these doors to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. 
Paul's in prison for preaching the gospel. He says, here's, what, here's the rest of my prayer. That I pray that I might make it clear, make the gospel clear to people, which is how I ought to speak. And then he says to the Colossian Christians, and I think by extension to us and all Christians, we need to be people who walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The way that we live vis-a-vis outsiders needs to be wise. What does he mean? Well, making the best use of the time, that kind of wisdom. Your version may say uh, taking advantage of the opportunity or buying up the opportunity or something like that. And so are we opportunistic? when it comes to uh, chances, opportunities to talk about Jesus, to share the gospel with people. And then he he sort of uh, defines the kinds of uh, speech that we should be engaged in. Let your speech, as you're talking to outsiders about Jesus, let your speech, verse 6, be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. So there's a lot of forethought that goes into this prayer open eyes, sensitivity to opportunities, awareness. We're not just going through life willy-nilly as if, you know, people are just props for our drama. They're just sort of inert things that we, if we need something from them, maybe we'll talk to them or try to get a deal from them or something like that. But otherwise, we're not really engaged because it's really about me and, and they're just sort of objects like trees or rocks or whatever. There's a lot of people in the world, you notice? A lot of people in Fuquay all of a sudden, last three years. You can't drive anywhere at 5 p.m. I just don't go out, you know. We'll wait till 7 to go to the store or whatever. Because it's just, it's, people are everywhere. But how do we think of people as precious souls that, that are, for the 70, 80 years they're on this planet, it's like your child when they're, you know, 0 to 15. The, the largest part of their existence is going to be in eternity. The little part we see is just the tiny beginning. And and they're going to be somewhere in some situation, wonderful or horrible, eternally. And we we are walking past these people, rubbing shoulders with them, making eye contact or not, having a conversation or not, engaging and reaching out or going into our own little comfort zone and holding up like like a bear hibernating in the winter. God mandates that we share the gospel if we're disciples of Jesus. And so I want to just basically make the point here, we need to develop an alertness to to God's providence in in, in presenting these opportunities uh, to us. We need to look for His hand in, in all of our interactions with other people, which could seem random. Maybe they're not so random. We need a sense of urgency. And often we get really urgent, we get histrionic even, we get bent out of shape and worried and really uh, motivated to work on certain things that if you look at it really honestly, in a, in a thorough way, aren't going to last very long at all. They're not permanent. They're transitory. And here are these people around us who are permanent somewhere. They're headed toward a permanent, they're on a trajectory that takes them to some permanent destiny, eternity. That's what we need to be urgent about. I want to share a quote with you today. I've used it before, but I think it's perfect in light of what we're talking about here. It's from C.S. Lewis's uh, little book, The Weight of Glory. Really an essay, an extended essay. And in this, he's talking about the glory, uh, this new kind of uh, existence that we'll have, defining the Bible as glory, uh, eternally. All right, It'll be a different sort of thing. And what he says, it may be uh, possible for each, each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. In other words, we're, we're often oblivious to the eternal whereabouts and status, glory as he puts it, of our neighbors. We think about ours, but we don't think about other people's. Here's what he says. It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship in eternity. They're going to be so transformed. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree, listen to this, all day long, you and I are in some degree helping each other, other human beings, to one or the other of these two destinations, either the the one that's worthy of worship, seemingly, because it's so beautiful and glorious, or the one that's horrific and nightmarish. We are helping along everybody around us to one of those two destinies. Does that 
Isn't that a little chilling? It is in light, or in the light, of these overwhelming possibilities. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, with other people. There are no ordinary people. They're just ordinary people. There's no such thing. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. They're transitory. They're going to pass away. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And to some extent, that's on us. I mean, God is calling us to rise and go. No? Are we disciples? So, that's my longest point today. Now, also in Acts 8, we see that evangelism is a kind of communication which is sensitive to the vantage point of other people, the people we're talking to. In other words, it's aware, it has an awareness that is outside yourself. You're able to think about where that person's coming from. I mean, you have to, if you're communicating anything, you have to begin where people are. Right? I've often read when I'm reading stuff on how to you know, teach better and all that, one of the best things a teacher can do is have a rapport with his or her students. So you know where they've come from, something about their story. You know how they think. It's not just about the data. You're, you're not just a data conduit. You're like, you, you need to know what the target is. It is a, a transmission and a reception. You may come up with the greatest technology to pr- uh, broadcast data out to the world. If somebody hasn't developed a way for it to be received, it's useless. Right? You've got to be on the frequency that they're on, so to speak. Sensitive to other people's way of looking at things, where they're coming from. And you can see this here in Acts chapter 8. He invited Philip, the eunuch does, to come and sit with him in the chariot. Now the passage of the scripture that the eunuch was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so the eunuch who is reading this, says to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? That's from the Old Testament, from an Old Testament prophet. Is he talking about himself or someone else? I mean, these are good questions. And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Why do you think he started with this scripture? Why start there? That's where he was. And a lot of times what we want to do, if we get around to talking to people, if we broach the subject of Jesus or eternity or their soul or things that really matter or the other kinds of weighty conversations that light, might lead somebody to think about their spiritual condition, we're we all ready with stuff. We've we got the gun cocked, we're ready to fire. We have no idea whether it's going to resonate or not. We haven't bothered with that. That's, we don't even think that matters. He deigns to talk from the perspective of the person he's talking to. He's willing to get down in his life and start where he is. And I, I know he's literally talking about where he's reading from, but Philip could have started somewhere else. And I think there's a metaphorical sense of this that, that is even more important, that we have to begin where the person is. And we see this all through the New Testament. When Paul is in Athens, he quotes Greek poets that they were familiar with, even as some of your own poets have said. People like Eratus and Menander, we know that that these are extra-biblical writings. Paul found true enough to quote, to build a rapport with the the Athenians. He starts where they are, from their worldview. Yet when he gets over in, uh, later in Acts, when he's before uh, a Jewish multitude who's in in great opposition to him, in fact his life might be at stake, he's in the temple area, and it says, Luke tells us, goes out of his way to tell us that he spoke in the Hebrew language which they didn't always do that. Now, what if Paul had reversed that? What if he'd rolled into Athens and gone out into the Areopagus there and addressed all of these pagans with their great history of philosophers and all of that and quoted some obscure Jewish text that they'd never heard of? 
or, or use the, the Hebrew language with, you know, with which they are not familiar. And then on the other hand, he'd gone into this Jewish stronghold, the temple, and started quoting pagan poets. I mean, it would have been a disaster. And that took work on Paul's part. But he's willing to do that. The point is, to be comprehensive, if, if what we're dealing with, folks, is news, what is the gospel? Good news, right? We're communicating, we're sharing good news. Hey, I want to tell you something. Have you heard the news? Well, for news to be communicated at all, it's got to be in the language of the hearer, right? Have you ever traveled to a foreign country and turn on a TV and there's the news, the person looks just like ours, there's a talking head up there, they've got a, their little desk and they're calling on these you know, reporters on location. You have no idea what they're talking. It's not very helpful to you if you don't speak that language. It's not news to you. It's noise to you. And so we, if it's going to be news, by definition, we have to communicate in the idiom. And I'm using language here metaphorically, though that obviously applies if you're talking to somebody who's from a different country or something like that. But we've got to talk in, 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 the, in the, the, the idioms, the, the, the way of getting the, in the shoes of the people we're talking to to present the gospel in a way that's going to make sense at the beginning. Um, and I think this is why Paul, his M.O. was to be all things to all men. 1 Corinthians 9, here's what he says. And he talks about this for more than a chapter. This is obviously extremely important to Paul because it occupies a whole lot of verses in 1 Corinthians. Think of Corinth, a very cosmopolitan international city. All kinds of ideas, people, races, ethnicities, languages, in and out, products. It's, it's, it's a San Francisco or a New York or... Uh, you know, a London, something like that, a Hong Kong. For though I am free from all, he says, to this church that is now, church of Jesus, who is, that is now in Corinth. He writes to them, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, this is the law of Moses, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. That's pretty good length to go to just to preach the gospel, wouldn't you say? I'm going to live under the law in a sense for people who believe you have to so I can take them to another place. I'm going to start where they are. Well, that's like giving up a lot of stuff. That's like submitting yourself to a lot of rules. Verse 21, though, he says this, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Go to a culture that doesn't have the law of Moses? I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to, do, I'm going to start where they are. Now, he says, I'm not being outside the law of God, but, uh, but, uh, but under the law of Christ. Why? Why do all this? That I might win those outside the law, verse 21. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. And here's his principle. I have become all things to all people, that, I by, I, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And I know that, that some of us are, are going to, we, we hear this and we go, man, that's a lot of work, though. I'd rather just, I, you know, it's hard enough to learn the Bible. I, I know what I need to tell them. And if anybody's interested, I'll tell them that. Too much work to do all this cultural stuff or psychological stuff or emotional stuff. Do I really have to sit there and listen to a person's problems and where they're coming from and their worldview and all that? Just, yes, you do. If necessary, if you're talking to somebody just like you, then maybe not. How many people in the world are just like you? Right? What this is called is L-O-V-E. It's called love. Look what Paul says. What's our, mo our, our motto for the We love, what is love? Philippians 2 says that we're to be like Jesus. We're to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 4, and following. We're not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. He was God, but did not cling to that divine privilege. Instead, he emptied himself for others. That's love. Love is sacrificial. Love is surrendering self. And look what Paul says here. Here's why he is all things to all men. So think of it in those terms if you think it's too hard. He says, I'm really free from all, from all people and all these rules and stuff, but I've made myself a servant, a slave to all people that I might win more of them. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I can share blessings with other people. And so there is a sensitivity or an awareness, a willingness to 
give up yourself and your comfort zone and your free time, your money maybe, whatever it is, and, and, and really listen and learn about where the, the, the people that we were trying to share the gospel with are coming from so that we have a better chance of getting it across successfully. And then thirdly, evangelism is a kind of communication that ultimately, and this is why point two is so important, because we're talking about the Word of God. This is why we work so hard to see somebody else's vantage point, not so we can just go, oh, good, that's wonderful. Diversity, that, that's not my point. My point is to say we want to communicate something that transcends diversity. Sure, the world's diverse. God made it that way. It's awesome. But there's all kinds of cultures and races and ethnicities and languages, but there's, there are universals as well. We're all made in His image. He wants to, we're, we're all broken. We've all become estranged by our sinfulness, and He wants to reconcile us and the whole world through Jesus to Himself. So we need that reconciling agent, the Word of God. And so that's why we work so hard to appreciate where the people are coming from, their vantage point. But ultimately, sharing the gospel is a communication that must be based in Scripture. So another way to put this is, wherever we begin, so we should begin where people are, wherever we begin, and that's going to vary, we should end up at the same place. The Word of God. The Word of God. Ultimately, that conversation with the other person has to turn to Scripture. And I want you to notice here, we're not going to read it all again, but this whole conversation in Acts 8 is just laden with references to Scripture. Look at all the stuff in red. So the eunuch is reading the prophet Isaiah. That's our Old Testament from the Bible. Um, he asked, uh, Philip asked him, hey, do you, you're reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Where? In the Bible. Now the passage of Scripture that he's reading, verse 32. Passage of what? Scripture. This is Isaiah 53. That's a big quote from Scripture. Then the eunuch says to Philip in verse 34, uh, who, who's, who's the prophet, the biblical prophet, talking about? And then Philip beginning with this Scripture. It's Scripture, 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 Scripture. We're not going to have a profitable discussion with somebody. We're not going to be able to share the gospel with somebody. We might be sharing. We're not sharing the gospel of Jesus if it's not based on the word of Jesus. And so ultimately this communication, this evangelistic communication, must be biblical. And that, that opens up things like, well, there may be some disagreement. I mean, this eunuch has been to Jerusalem and has not gotten any real insight on what Isaiah 53 means. And it's kind of easy to understand uh, why some of the rabbis and, and folks in, in, in Jerusalem in the first century might not have understood a passage which is saying the Messiah is going to be actually X'd out by Rome. He's going to be crucified. That's, that's, there's nothing more counterintuitive to their way of thinking than that. This is a twist in the story. So no wonder he couldn't get any help there. But Philip let him go, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings. You, you, you read in the Bible that you're good. Isn't that kind of, aren't there elements of that in our culture today? You think that, we think that, eh, we're good. We'll just start a new church. That's the American way, it's like shopping. <laughs> I'll just go to a new grocery store, got a better deal. You couldn't do that in the first century because usually a church where you are, you got to work it out. That's why I think in Corinth, they, they, they're never told, just divide. And Corinth was the hottest of messes. And they're told, don't divide, work it out. Be unified. So, we've got to be willing to, to engage, but it's based on the Bible. And that may involve some give and take and saying, you know what, have you ever thought about this passage? And of course we do that in a friendly way, we do it in a loving way, a selfless way, with an, an humble way because we might need to learn something too. I hope you understand that that's the, the most understated thing I've ever said. Of course we're going to be relearning, always, our whole life. It's not like we figure out the Bible when we're 25 and then we never change our mind. Um, we're ever learning, going back to the fountain of Scripture all the time, back to the source all the time. All right, so we, we need to trust the Bible's ability to show people, to convict people, to speak to people in the, in the deepest recesses of their being. And I think sometimes we're, we're not... Uh, want to trust the scriptures like that. There is something inherently powerful in the Word of God 
that allows it to show people their truest self. Even people who aren't believers. If they'll give it time, they begin. I, I've read so many stories like this. Met people who've gone through this who are unbelievers, who are you know, skeptical about it. It looks like just any other religion. And the more they read the Bible, the more they begin to say, this basically tells the story of the world and the story of me and what's wrong and why I'm here and why I have these feelings and these longings better than any other worldview, better than any other you know, sort of meta-narrative that's out there in the world. The Bible really does it. It shows me who I am. It shows me the true picture of the world. And I think that's kind of what Hebrews 4, a passage like Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 are getting at, is getting at. For the word of God, he says, is living and active. It's just as living and active as the God who breathed it. Isn't God alive? Isn't God active? Well, his word, it's not just inert documents. It's alive. It's active. Well, what's it doing? Like a two-edged sword, it's piercing us. And it's going down deep to the place where the division of soul and spirit are, of joints and marrow. Like, it, it really cuts deep. It really goes into the deepest recesses of, of who and what we are. And it shows us, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the human heart such that no creature is hidden from God's sight. And when we read the Bible, it, it, it shows us to be naked and exposed in the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And we need to trust the, the Bible story and its ability to do that to people, even people who don't know Jesus yet. Okay? Why would it work this way? Well, God made people and God made Scripture. And I think He made the one to resonate with the other on purpose. And I think this is the reason Paul told the Corinthians, and this is just an illustration of that. You know, the Corinthians, it, Corinth is generally a Gentile church. That's a Gentile place, it's a Gentile church mostly. But look what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul, who is a Jewish um, you know, missionary and writer, writes this to the Corinthians, a Gentile church. I do not want you to be unaware, 1 Corinthians 10.1, brothers, that our fathers, our fathers, and then he starts quoting from the Old, from alluding rather to the Old Testament. Our fathers, the Hebrew patriarchs, the Israelite Jewish people, were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud. So he sees the Jewish history, the Jewish people, the Jewish stories, the Jewish scriptures, as any convert to Christ's scriptures. It doesn't matter that you're a Gentile. They're being incorporated, integrated into the story, the trajectory of Israel. Our fathers, the Jewish fathers, are now your fathers. And scripture is for everybody. And we need to trust that. And uh, realize that when we're communicating the gospel, it's basically a discussion, ultimately, we may have to begin wherever the person is, but we're going to get to the point of opening up a Bible and talking about what it means for this world, for my life, what's gone wrong with the world, what's gone wrong with me, why is all the brokenness here, why do we have all these problems, and what's the solution? And, and let, let that just sort of percolate. And love on people while it percolates. And, and let, let the seed be planted and let God do His thing. It may, not, it may take decades to sprout. But let the Word do its magic. Alright? One more. Evangelism is a kind of communication which is directed toward a specific objective. We're not just chewing the fat. Now, I don't think we need to be impatient. I don't think we need to be pushy. I don't think we need to be what happens too often, if we're, truth be told, arrogant and condescending. The Bible isn't a weapon that we you know, beat people over the head with. We're talking about loving people, after all. And we are submitting to the Bible, too. And one of the best things we can do is show people by the way we engage with them and engage with the Bible that we also submit to its authority. Not just say that, but actually do that. If they show us something we hadn't thought before and it looks to be true, go, you know what, that's right. Just because you think you have the right doctrine on one or two or three or four or 14 things doesn't mean you can't be shown something else in the Bible. The Bible's a big book. And I think that spirit of humility of, I'm submitting to it too, help me. Let's help each other. will go a long way to building credibility. Instead of a top-down, you know, so I've got this figured out, let me tell you. Open your, open your mouth, let me dump some things in there, you know. That's not what we're talking about. That's my caveat to, to, to uh, qualify this last point. Nevertheless, we are, we are headed toward a specific objective. 
And that objective is to link people to Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's about our Lord. It's about loving them so much that we want to give them the one thing in the world that is most missing in their life. The one thing that, that uh, or, uh, you know, in which everything else coheres, that, that, that you know, pervades everything. He's everything, Jesus is. And so we want to link people to Jesus. And that's why we read here in Acts 8.35 that though Philip begins with the scripture, the eunuch's reading, he proceeds to tell them the good news about Jesus. He doesn't just say, you know, the scriptures are really interesting. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament. What would you like to talk about? Let's just hang out and talk for 10 years, and I'll never let you really know what I really think about what the point is. No, no, no. He tells them the good news about Jesus. And that's the specific objective. The definite objective is to ultimately, maybe it takes time, it depends on the situation and the person, but the goal is there, and that is to link people with Jesus. And the reason this is, for this is obvious. I mean, look what he quotes here. Or look what he's reading. He's reading from Isaiah 53 about Jesus, the lamb who, who willingly goes to the slaughter and does not object. He doesn't open his mouth. He humbly allows this miscarriage of justice, <clears throat> allows himself to be executed and to continue on in the rest of Isaiah 53. Why does he do this? He was wounded. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We just do our own thing. We're apathetic. We're rebellious. We're hard-headed. We're uninterested. We turn to our own way. And here's what God did in Christ. The Lord has laid on Him, on Jesus, this sacrificial lamb, the iniquity, the lawlessness, the disregard for what's right. He's laid all the world's iniquity on Him and taken it off of us and taken it off of that person I'm sitting across the table in a coffee shop with or riding in a chariot with. That'd be cool if you brought somebody to Christ in a chariot, right? Probably not going to find too many of those, but, but there are plenty of places, plenty of chariots, as it were. And people need, they need their iniquity taken from them, right? They need the punishment. They need the, 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 all the evil that has come from their sins taken from them. And that's what Jesus offers. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about. So we need to connect people to Jesus. We need to connect them to His sin-remitting death. That's what every human being needs. And that's why the topic of baptism comes up here. Look at this, Acts 8, 35. He says, Luke tells us that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, where the eunuch's reading, beginning there, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, apparently, sharing the gospel of Jesus includes talking about baptism, right? Because we don't have the connections here. He just says he's preaching the good news about Jesus, verse 35. And the next thing we read, the eunuch's response to the preaching of Jesus is, here's water, can I be baptized now? That's an odd thing to say if Jesus never mentioned it, wouldn't you say? Clearly he did. And we know, we know from the Gospels Jesus talked about this. Mark 16, 15, and 16. It's, it's uh, you know, Acts 28, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew 28, and so many other places. Uh, and then his apostles mention it all over the place in the epistles. It's mentioned all... All through the conversion accounts, the conversion of stories in the book of Acts include, in most cases, clear reference to uh, baptism. And so we, I would suggest to you that we really haven't shared the good news about Jesus to someone if we don't talk about baptism. I mean, that's the picture here. And it's the picture of many other places in the New Testament. We're not really giving somebody Jesus if we leave this part off. I don't know what else we do with this, right? 
And that's something that our own heritage, if, if you've up, grown up in a church of Christ, a Christian church or something like that, this has been a central part of that. And I don't take my heritage as gospel because it's, it's a mixture of the Bible and human beings, like anybody else's heritage. Any, anybody ever been in a church where there was some uh, person that wasn't being exactly biblical in every aspect of their life all day long, every day? Have you ever been in a church that wasn't that way? If so, I let me know where it is. I'm moving, I'm getting a new job. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they probably wouldn't have me because I'd walk in and it'd ruin it. You don't fit. No, every, every church, every faith tradition has got at least some brokenness and bad theology and just wooden traditionalism that is, is as valuable in the minds of their people as the Bible is. They may not be able to see that, but that's the case. And then maybe some truth too. I want to tell you something. Baptism, connection to Jesus, is eminently biblical. And we need to be committed to that. Not because some of us have that in our faith tradition, it makes us feel comfortable, but because it is in Scripture. And it's connected with Jesus. Why? You know, some people say, well, you're just talking about a work now, a human work. I don't believe that's true, biblically. We didn't make up the idea. It, Jesus commanded it. The apostles practiced it and command it. It's taught in the epistles. It's exemplified in the book of Acts. And we, we've got to remember the very reason given in the Bible for baptism. The purpose of baptism is the very purpose that we just mentioned, is the, is the goal we have when we're talking to somebody about Jesus, and that is to link them to Him. That's what baptism is. Romans 6 makes that exact point. We, the problem is we have sin, and we need to have the death of Jesus the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sin, right? To erase that and to present us as, as perfect and pure before God. Look what baptism does according to Paul in Romans 6. Do you not know, Romans 6, 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? That, this is, you're contacting the death of Jesus in baptism. We were buried, therefore, with Him. We're linked to Him by baptism into His death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism does a couple of, I don't know, fairly important things. Would you agree? It kills the old person of sin. Baptism in Christ, not baptism just because it's a, you're, you're trying to do some human thing, but baptism of the Bible. If you're doing this because you're trying to obey Jesus and, and because you know it's part of His teaching, how you come to Him, then baptism is a death to the old person and a resurrection of a new person without sin. You're going to still sin, but now you, you have, you're in contact with the death of Christ and you can pray and ask for forgiveness. Anyway, summed up in verse 5. We've been united with Him in a death like His in baptism, and we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Baptism encapsulates and exemplifies uh, and enacts all of that. So it, it's, it's important not because it's from your faith tradition and you're scared to death to deviate from that, it's important because it connects people to Jesus. And we better be scared to not do that. We better be scared. We need to be afraid of the right things. And not obeying the Lord, uh, not following the Lord, not adhering to His way, ought to frighten us. Um, and there's a lot of other passages. We're going to quit now. But Galatians 3.27, in Christ, uh, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All right? It's an odd thing to want Jesus without baptism into Jesus, to de-emphasize that when it's all over the New Testament. From Jesus on. That's an odd, curious thing. And I think it has more to do with American history, actually, and the frontier and revivalism and stuff like that than it does the Bible. That's a pretty modern dissociation if you go back and look at it. People might have baptized in different ways in the Middle Ages and ancient times, uh, but, but they typically saw it as crucial to the initiation into the Jesus way, the Jesus walk. And we can talk about that more if anybody wants to. I'm, I'm available to have Bible studies and all that kind of thing. It'd be weird if I preached this lesson and said, I'm too busy to talk with you about this stuff. I'm not. This is what I want to do. Anyway, look, look at the eunuch's reaction. They came up out of the water, so he's been baptized into Christ. The Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. The eunuch sees him no more. 
But the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. Why? His sins are forgiven. He's a new creature. He is headed to an eternity with God. That's a beautiful thing. And then we read this. And I think this is exemplary for all of us, folks. But Philip, the one who's done the teaching here, who's done the sharing, who's communicated the gospel, finds himself at Azotus. I don't know if that's miraculously. kind of sounds like it. He just finds himself there. At any rate, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We need to be people who preach the gospel wherever we are. We, we talk about it. We're, we're sitting on go. And I realize that we're all different. And, and that everybody doesn't have a forte, a strength in every one of these areas, maybe. It's one body, many members, Paul says about the church in 1 Corinthians 12. We've all got different roles and talents and gifts. But I think together we can all do this. So, you know, we need to follow the example as a, as a church of teaching, sharing, facilitating the sharing of the gospel. Maybe you can put somebody who you feel knows the scriptures better with the person, the friend. And you're there too, but you have coffee together. You're the, you're the liaison, the broker who brings them together. That's a beautiful thing too. Maybe you can be the person who uh, studies with the people who are going to study. Maybe you're not as socially gifted or something like that. Maybe you can just entertain people at your house and try to facilitate these connections. Whatever it is, we need to be people who, quote, rise and go. Amen? Let's think about that more and more. Uh, as we think about loving because He first loved us. I mean, He came down here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? So let's think about our commitment to spreading the gospel, uh, not as some sort of way to justify our, our, our status with God, some sort of legalistic works righteousness, but just the debt of gratitude that we should have by a God who initiates with grace. Let's do that for other people and be more sensitive. Let's pray. That each of us in this congregation can be more alert to the doors God is routinely opening for us. And let's do what we can do. I'm not judging each other. We're not going to do that. There's no point in that. One body, many members. But let's all do the little things we can do. And in God's hand, those little things can become big things. Thank you for your attention today. We're now going to sing a song. If we can help you in some way, let us know by coming to one of these chairs in the middle. And we will do our best to help you. While together we all stand and sing. <laughs>